Please stay tuned for Mendocino County Fire Safe Council Radio coming right up in a moment. Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire My name's Cobb. I'm in the studio here at KZYX, and we're going to begin our Mendocino County Fire Safe Council radio. We have our great host coming right up to you, director of the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council, Scott Craddy. And we have today two guests joining us, which he will introduce shortly. Scott, are you with us? Uh, I think so. Good morning. Yes, you are. Um, Good morning. Thanks, Cobb. Thanks, everybody, for being with us on the 5th Mendocino County FireSafe radio program. For those of you who find them irresistibly fascinating, you can go get the first four on our website, which is firesafemendocino.org. Today's show is about pausing to appreciate and learn a little more about some of the people who are doing the work and sacrificing to keep our community functional and safe. Uh, this community that we've built in a wildfire-adapted environment, which probably talk about a bit. Um, we've all been thinking a lot about medical professionals a lot, and uh, they are people who are making great sacrifices, as do law officers and a lot of others. Fire and emergency medical first responders also have our backs 24-7. Uh, and another amazing thing about them, in particular at the local level of community fire districts, is that the bulk of them are volunteers. In other words, these are people who, to some extent, are putting their own careers and their personal lives on hold to be there for you when you need them. They're your neighbors, and they go through extensive training. They put themselves out there for you, not only on fires, but medical emergencies and every other kind of disaster that comes along. Um, and sometimes they even have to raise funds for the gear that they need to do work on top of all that. Um, so to paint a little better picture of what they do for us and why we need to care about it, we're going to take a bit of a deep dive in with the Anderson Valley Fire District today. And to help us do that, we have uh, Fire Chief Andres Avia and EMS Officer and Battalion Chief Clay Eubanks with us on the radio. And at this point, I'm going to turn it over to them. And we didn't pick in order, but maybe we'll start with Andres. And if you could uh, just give us a little bit about your background and how you got where you are and, and why you're there. Sure. Good morning. Thanks. Thanks for having us on. Um, it's a privilege to be on with you guys. Um, so yeah, my background is uh, pretty simple. Um, I had no intention of being in the fire service whatsoever. Um, it actually came upon me as an accident. Um, I was uh, a young man in my 20s, early 20s. I believe I was 21, 22 when I came to Anderson Valley uh, and started working on a local ranch. And uh, of course, when the existing fire chief, my predecessor, saw a young man working on a ranch, he said that you basically had no choice, but I needed to be on the fire department. Um, and I didn't want to do it. Um, went in and uh, went to check it out. And actually my first training, I saw some folks in uniform and 
didn't really want that to be me. You know, I wanted to kind of be a person out in the woods and do my thing. And I left. Well, he came chasing me down and brought me back to the next training. And once I got in, I, I was hooked. Um, I saw the, the community and the people who are in the trainings and what they do. And it wasn't what I thought it was. And from then on, it was just, you know, starting to learn the basics and then moved up and, and eventually took this job in 2000, this fire chief's job in 2013 and have been working with the crew since then. But it was not what I intended to do, um, but it's absolutely where I want to be. It's a great job. Great. Thank you. Um, Clay. Hi. Thank you for having me on. Um, I started as a volunteer almost 30 years ago. It was 29 years ago this month. And, I, and my neighbors, I, I lived over in Cape Bay Valley, over in Yolo County. And the fire station was a little red barn behind my house and with a single engine in it. My neighbors kept driving past me full speed you know, once, once a week or once every two weeks. And I was like, wow, what are you doing? And uh, they got me into a meeting and uh, it's like Andres, I was hooked after that. It became a 29 year um, passion for me. Great. All right. Thank you both. Uh, it's an honor to have you on. And um, with that, let's start with a little bit of basics about the fire district. Um, and and we you know, didn't really designate an order here, so whoever jumps in first can jump in. Uh, but if we could get a little bit about the district and what it's how it how it you know what's its function and structure and how big is sure. it and how big an area are you are you serving? Well, I'm, I'm glad Cobb's here because he actually wrote a piece about the history of the EMS branch. Um, and we want to kind of describe how our fire department works. And it's probably um, unproportionately to fire service because it says fire department. We're actually a fire district as well as we have an ambulance transport, um, which which we were technically an emergency services that does both EMS transport and fire suppression. Um, so I think want to make a distinction there. A lot of people think that we're just a fire department, and we'll go into that a little bit with Clay, and, and maybe Cop can and put some history there. Um, really interesting background on that side. So basically, our, our district started, uh, in, or our fire department started in 1955, was a formalized, a similar time frame for the ambulance service, 1955. But they they worked along, and they eventually uh, transitioned into a, a governmental. Um, uh, service, uh, which is called the Anderson Valley Community Service Dis District. Most people think of them as a CSD, an acronym for it, uh, which does more than just the fire department. Um, it is uh, essentially anything that's in their latent powers to do. So we currently have a, a rec center. We provide the street lighting in town, the airport. Uh, now we have fire services and ambulance services. And they're working on potentially doing a water sewer. Um, so we work kind of uh, similar to what you would think of as a, you know, a city or municipal uh, type of, uh, you know, government. Uh, but we're just a rural special district. Uh, so we have a fire service within that. Um, we we started early on and went through uh, a lot of transition. Uh, the fire department was on its own. Uh, we actually, from years past, heard rumors that, and I wasn't here for it, uh, ambulance and fire did not get along. Um, they slowly started to merge. I give a lot of credit to my predecessor, Colin Wilson, 
uh, for um, bringing unity and making a cohesive group between the two, which set the stage for when I took uh, this job in 2015, we were able to formally merge it, uh, start the merging process to eventually come to fruition in 2017, where we are now one ambulance and fire department running in unity, uh, where our volunteers who maybe were on the ambulance and on the fire side are working on on one single uh, department uh, and we're working as one group. Um, so that's kind of a, a real short, hasty description of when we started, you know, in 1955, running independent to now where we're running with an ambulance service. Um, Clay, do you want to speak on, on the ambulance and how it was started or maybe Gob on the laundry portion? Well, I, I probably knows the earlier days better than I do. I understand it was started by some logging companies um who needed an uh, emergency service so it was uh, i believe it was a hearse correct correct me if i'm wrong on that no you got it was it. the original pardon you got it yeah was the original ambulance i think back in 1955 uh in the early 70s they became a formal nonprofit and operated as a nonprofit ever since. Then, uh, as Andres said, in 2017, well, we started the process in 2015. I was the EMS manager at the time for, or the ambulance manager at the time for the ambulance. And we started the process of merging the two together since we always responded to the same calls. And a lot of the crew had already begun to be on both departments so it made it a lot easier uh, especially after colin did so much work in trying to encourage people getting on the ambulance from the fire and bringing some people from ambulance onto fire and vice versa so um yeah and it's worked out really well it's we have a really solid crew now dedicated volunteers that take 12-hour shifts and commit to being available to respond within six minutes six to ten minutes on 12-hour shifts 24 hours a day seven days a week i would just add a little something in there uh, just to highlight the role of uh, technology in changing ems which is you go back 30 years which is right about when the Rescue 911 system developed. And prior to that, you know, people had landlines, especially out here. Uh, Anderson Valley Ambulance still at their office uses the landline number that was just the phone to the local market, the Anderson Valley market. And that's who people called when they, you know, needed an ambulance because the folks that ran the market were a big part of that. But it's kind of incredible when you think about uh kzyx as well you know started in 1989 and then you move you know each decade can be marked by significant develops in technology especially the internet to where we have this pandemic and now we're all meeting on zoom to do this show so and this is exactly where i was gonna leap up to andres did you have something you wanted to add in there before we you're on mute oh, you're, you're still on mute Speaking of technology out there, everybody. There we go. <laughs> good catch, good catch. So I wanted to speak a little bit on on kind of the area, the geography, and the people that we serve. Um, you know, the district initially started with uh, a much smaller uh, district. It was Boonville, Philo, and Navarro. And over the years, I believe 
In the 70s, they annexed Yorkville, uh, maybe in the late 70s, don't you know, quote me on that, and uh, and then eventually Rancho Navarro and made the district uh, much larger as far as the physical boundaries uh, to uh, basically 156 square miles, um, which, which that sounds pretty big, but when you think of Mendocino County as a whole, um, there's a lot of real estate in this county, and, and we just cover a small portion of it. But the interesting thing about it is 156 square miles is our legal district. Um, but we actually serve 336 square miles. Um, why the discrepancy? Uh, where our legal district boundaries um, go to a certain area, but the there's a no man's land the, 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 between the fire districts. There's a lot of districts that aren't contiguous. Um, there's just a no fire department in that area. And we're going to come to you no matter what. So uh, local fire agencies are responding into areas that aren't in their legal district just to make sure people uh, are served um, no matter what if they call 911. So uh, we divide our district up into three battalions in order to cover this, cover this huge area. Uh, we consider them east, uh, central, and west, even though our district kind of goes in a more of a northerly direction. Um, but what we do is we divide them up. So our, our volunteers, even though we have a really full roster of anywhere from 45 plus people, we divide them up into these uh, three groups, you know, these three battalions. And, you know, you may have <clears throat> 10 responders in one area, 15 in another, or, you know, however they get distributed. But when you think about who's in your area, who's at work, who's not, who's sick, who's traveling, uh, we, we don't have a ton of people, but we have enough to cover the district. Uh, we work uh, in a almost a mutual aid system in our district. So if something's happening, say, Rancho Navarro, and there's not a lot of people coming, the Boonville people would come and assist that battalion with their responses. And Yorkville would even move up to cover Boonville. So we do a lot of covering uh, in order to cover this, this large area, uh, especially in this linear uh, um, kind of geography or this map that we have. So we have a little bit of a challenge. Um, and I think all departments in Mendocino County have similar issues with the large areas that they cover with so few volunteers so it just is a testimony to the commitment troops have uh to covering such a vast area and we'll probably loop back to that um because you know in this uh disaster prone and larger and larger disaster hosting environment that we live in I, you get pulled further and further out as well so we'll loop back to that but we touched on uh, that we're on Zoom and uh, and that we're in the midst of COVID. And before we get too far from that, um, since I think a lot of people are interested in that, I wanted to loop back and um, sort of touch base on what you've had to do to adapt to that. Uh, we've, we've spent a year with it. Um, it's changed a lot of things. So if you could talk a bit about how you've had to adapt to the pandemic and what kind of support you got and what kind of support you might have actually still need and still need going forward to make it work. That's going to be you, Clay. It's going to be me. Um, how have we adapted to the pandemic? Well, we've done a lot more. Originally, we stopped training in person in the original. As, as, as it went a little bit further, we started taking precautions. Um, we found that the Zoom training was not completely effective, so we still needed to have some participation with each other and get some hands-on so that people weren't getting rusty. But we started taking precautions in terms of changing where we trained 
we moved out into the app bay and we quit uh, bringing people inside uh, the uh, station itself for training. And then we practice a lot of social distancing and inside there and everybody during training is always masked up. In terms of calls, when we went out to start uh, responding to calls, it became a concern for us that we weren't really clear who was who may be exposed or have COVID or not have COVID. So we started uh, establishing certain protocols limiting our patient contacts to less and less people. Um, so that, you know, our, our system is very much everybody shows up. Uh, what we were trying to avoid was making sure only the pertinent people were getting, making patient contacts and um, being very careful about uh, transport and maintaining uh, personal protective equipment during transport. I would add to that that the, uh, the, the swine flu and those earlier things in, uh, I think it was mid-2000s, uh, uh, created a healthy supply uh, for PPE in our department. Uh, we, we had a good stockpile of, of N95s. Um, we had uh, you know quite a bit of uh, just regular PPE gloves and, and things of that, that nature, um, even some suits for that matter. Um, and so on the initial uh, phases of this, when everything was drawn down, uh, we were we were healthy with that um, in the initial phases. Uh, things have caught up with it, um, but it gave our troops the the proper safety equipment to get out there and get things done. Um, and we said earlier with this this weird geography, if the ambulance is coming from Boonville and we have someone in Rancho Navarro, a good 20, 25 minute drive, um, you know, we're not going to delay patient care. So that means we need to give those troops um, the PPE they need to do interactions as necessary before the ambulance gets there. So that meant a larger load of PPE needed to be distributed. And we were we were um, fortunate to have those stockpiles in our in our storage that we were able to get to the troops and keep them safe. So. Um, I think we we were we were fortunate on that front to have the right equipment. That's great, and I understand that. Um, um, I think this would be a relief to a lot of people that we're sort of coming coming around, and that the uh, inoculations are actually coming to the department as kind of as we speak. Yeah, so uh, I can, I'm happy to say that today uh, we're going to be going down to the health center, both Clay and I, um, and. Uh, about 10 of our troops, possibly uh, 12 tops, are going to get our uh, Pfizer vaccination today. Uh, 30 of our of our volunteers will be getting them. Um, some more will be getting them in other locations uh, or, you know, won't get them for other reasons. Uh, but 30 of our troops, uh, mostly ambulance folks and general staff and frequent responders will be getting those. Um, so today um, I will be getting my shot around noon. And uh, we'll see how it goes, uh, but I'm, I'm happy to jump on board and, and get that. So uh, we're finally getting some rollout. Um, I know the health center is getting theirs as well, uh, but this will be the first phase of rollout in the Anderson Valley, and uh, we're happy to participate. That's awesome. It's good to, good to hear that it's actually getting out into, into Mendocino and getting, getting to all parts of Mendocino, hopefully. Right. Uh, it's great news. If you just tuned in, you're listening to KZYX. This is Mendocino Fire Safe Radio. Uh, your host is Mendocino Council, excuse me, Mendocino County Fire Safe Council 
director Scott Craddy, and we are joined with two guests from the Anderson Valley Fire Department, uh, Chief Andres Avila and uh, Medical Officer Clay Eubank. Okay, uh, getting back into it, just to sort of paint a broader picture of, um, like to touch base on kind of what the range of things you do are. I know there's probably a lot more than I know, but you're doing you know, medical first response, you're doing fire, you're sort of doing fire prevention and mitigation planning, uh, you're doing building inspections, I know you've participated with the Fire Safe Council on Community Education, I mean, what... Um, what um, that, that's a huge range as it is. If you could talk about how you how many things you're coordinating, that'd be great. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So uh, I think uh, everything has been just tweaked with this COVID, um, but we we try to participate as much as we can in prevention and outreach, and that is that interaction uh, that we have been essentially I don't know stopped uh, during this COVID. We can't get out as much as we'd like, um, but w what we do is. We've broken up our department as uh, anybody who's, uh, we have prevention, we have, we have actual response, and then we have our day-to-day -day operations. So everything from maintenance, you know, in our office work, budgets, just general management. Um, and then what we've done from there is our, our different branches that get out to either the, the public or to our volunteers have been divided up. So Clay's job is he's the EMS officer. He's the emergency medical services officer. Um, but he also does uh, prevention, and prevention would be things that have to do with fire code. Um, he's going to go out and do start doing, uh, you know, routine inspections for the schools, um, for certain places of high occupancy, high you know, hazardous areas, things of that nature. So Clay kind of has a dual role here in the department, as well as responding and things of that nature. Uh, we also have uh, Angela DeWitt, and she has become our training officer, and her job is, well, training. And, uh, you know, with this whole COVID spin, um, we're really having to rethink the way we do business, as Clay alluded to earlier. So she's doing that as well as she does public outreach. So she's trying to work with people on a lot of these prevention things, you know, working with people's houses, where you put hydrants at, how do you clear your roads, you know, and really getting out with, uh, you know, site owner, you know, residents and people who are building uh, things of that nature in order to, you know, give the community what they need. So. We've kind of delegated the roles um, between Angela and Clay and myself, uh, but as a whole, uh, we try to be as proactive as possible during our um, non-response times uh, because anything we do now uh, is essentially uh, assisting people when the disaster comes. And if we get ahead of it, uh, we're, we're doing the right job. Oh, yeah, I wanted to sort of offer my things. I know you helped us a lot get ahead of things with... Um, uh, the Fire Safe Council has a chipper now, uh, and the Anderson Valley Fire Department in particular um, was a tremendous help helping us organize, getting it out there and in use, helping organize places that it was needed in the community. Uh, we even partnered a bit with, uh, with your maintenance department in helping it uh, keep it maintained, and um, I believe it's uh, parked over uh, with maybe some of your gear at the, uh, at the fairgrounds at the moment. So um, there's a, a kind of a huge level of community engagement and outreach and helping us put all that together. Yeah, I, I would say thank you to the Fire Safe Council on that one. That was a tremendous uh, grant that came this way. Uh, Family Tree did a wonderful job. Uh, they were the ones who were actually running it, and they came to the PGD uh, 
grant. Um, but, you know, I think we had 40 plus residents who all benefited from chipping. And, and these were large pots uh, that we got chipped away. And uh, we, we saw a lot. I know the community was very thankful. Um, they spent a lot of thank yous and, and appreciation to you guys for that chipper program. And we'd like to continue doing that um, with future grants down the road. So um, those kind of activities are going to help people. They're going to help slow fire. Um, they're going to help fire suppression efforts. They're going to help with egress. They're going to help around your structure to save your structure. Um, so the more things that we do like that, whether it be chipping, burning, uh, just you know, basic fuel reduction, uh, is going to help the community. So uh, any of those programs we will be engaging in as many as possible. Um, so I'm going to go back to mutual aid for a moment. So we brought up that. So you've got a uh, a few people. Uh, a core of volunteers and 336 square miles to cover, which is kind of overwhelming to begin with. But on top of that, um, there's local, local departments get drawn into this network of mutual aid on all kinds of levels. I know you, Andres, ended up in Southern California at some point this year. Um, could you guys tell us a bit about you know where you've ended up? uh through this and and how how that works given all that you've got to cover how do you how do you end up helping other things and, and keeping the home fires not burning sure but so you want me to take that or you like it uh, you can take that one okay That's good. um so basically uh the the mutual aid system is uh is basically how the fire service works uh we will always come when someone uh, a neighbor calls and we always think of fires but you know this could be an earthquake uh, this could be a tsunami. Um, we think of fires because that's what we generally are seeing these days. Um, but it, it basically is for anything that overwhelms our neighbor. Um, wildfire is under the jurisdiction of CAL FIRE. Um, so they are going to be uh, the ones who essentially have jurisdiction and run the incident. And as things escalate and maybe get past their capacity, you then, or CAL FIRE or that what we call incident management team, would request for additional resources to augment that incident. Um, this could be anything, uh, you know, the Orville Dam was something that was a large incident that people assisted with. So it's a mutual aid system on any emergency. As they request more resources, fire departments will send uh, the certified uh, individuals to go do that. So it could be, you know, firefighters, it could be uh, people to help run the incident, it could be water tenders, it could be, um, you know, search and rescue, whatever it may be. The mutual aid system augments the need of their neighbors. Um, so CAL FIRE is essentially uh, requesting that local fire departments come out to these fires. And then from there, if it gets drawn out further, they may even uh, hire contractors, uh, you know, private uh, you know, individuals or groups to, to come in and help. So we get sucked into this system because we want to go out and help our neighbors. Um, when, they, uh, when we get a call, we want people to come help us. So we participate by sending uh, primarily wildland engines out to um, what we call campaign fires or strike teams. So when something happens down south, um, you, you mentioned that I left you. Uh, we, we would go out on uh, a fire. I think it was the L.A. fire. It was called the Apple Fire. That's what I initially got sent out on and went with a, a whole county's team. Um, there was five uh, engines from Mendocino County and one leader that went out and went down to Southern California. I was a part of that team. Um, and then we got diverted over to the uh, stagecoach in Kern County. We were out for, you know, two weeks or a week and a half, whatever it may be, and, and then came home. 
And throughout the summer, these deployments happen. So uh, I believe that Mendocino County as a whole was out for three months, uh, maybe longer, with a variety. And you'd have to talk to our OES coordinator on the exact numbers here. But I almost all, if not all, of our fire departments participate in some shape or form with a water tender or with overhead or with an engine or more uh, during the August complex and the Brook Trails incident. Uh, I think that was the Oak Fire. And what we do is we all kind of send out. Not everybody can send out of county, um, but when it comes down to in the county, uh, there's a tremendous support from fire departments. I know that we saw it in the Redwood Valley complex uh, this this summer where all of our fire departments jump in and help our neighbors. So that's kind of the deal is as the need goes, we 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 support. Um, so it's just a, a growing and expanding uh, mutual aid. And then as things slow down and get under control, they start to shed the load and bring people back to their district. So that's kind of the mutual aid system as a whole. Um, we do participate in it and uh, it brings a ton of experience uh, to our firefighters that then they can be uh, even more effective when something uh, starts in our district. So we participate for, uh, for those reasons. I, I would add that uh, it's not just local fire departments going out to these big campaigns. There's a lot of smaller local departments that actually staff CAL FIRE stations when the stations are drawn down to the um, point where CAL FIRE's resources are spread throughout the entire state, you'll have a lot of the local departments that will actually man stations 24-7, CAL FIRE stations to help support them. I know that Compshi was over in uh, Woodland manning the, uh, I'm not Woodland, Ukiah manning the uh, Ukiah station for a period of time. And so that's another element of the support that we can provide. And the whole thing is managed by the Office of Emergency Services, OES, who acts as kind of our uh, liaison with the state. Oh, and that's just not the core of the department. That's also like the volunteers that are having to juggle, juggle their work schedules and lives to somehow make that happen. Yes. Yeah. We, we had we had some of our crews that were out, you know, for two months plus. And what that means is, yes, that's a deployment. You know, that's a long time away from home. But you leave your job. You're leaving your source of income, uh, which is a, a real big jump, a hurdle for some of our folks. And, uh, you know, we as a district don't have a lot of uh, front money to just pay them forward. Um, so they're waiting for the check. Uh, we haven't even received uh, the checks yet for some of these fires. That means that they went out um, without being paid to assist these fires with uh, paychecks still yet to come. Um, and that's a big sacrifice for these trips to do. Uh, but they, they, I know that they enjoy it. Um, they learn a lot. And, you know, when the paycheck comes, it's a, it's a good paycheck. But um, they do sacrifice by leaving. And that's, a, that's another tribute to them. I have a question which is, uh, Clay, can you speak to, it might not be technically mutual aid, but the partnerships that exist uh, for medical aids in terms of ALS with uh, Ukiah Ambulance and CalSTAR and how that works? And it's, there is an EMS system in play, an overall EMS system. So we offer BLS services, which is, 
basic life support, which means that uh, our ambulances have an EMT and a driver on there. So we can do a certain level of medical care. At some point, though, the patient may require services greater than what we can provide. So, for instance, uh, some medications. We can't provide medication uh, if it's a significant trauma injury. Um, we need to pass those on to more advanced care. And so when we receive uh, a dispatch for a medical aid, if it's what we call an alpha or a bravo, we may not get that ALS dispatched with us automatically. But if we get a more significant uh, call, something that's life-threatening like a cardiac or difficulty breathing, they will dispatch an ALS unit from either Fort Bragg or um, Ukiah, whichever is closer, uh, to respond to the call along with us. And, and it's long, also a helicopter, which can, uh, which can be dispatched depending on weather um, with us as well. So then we will go in as the first responder, and if we deem it necessary, then we will transfer care to a, a higher medical authority, like a paramedic ambulance, or take them to a helicopter that they can fly them out. Cool. Uh, that's an amazing operation. And at that point, maybe it's a good point to turn a little bit to the nuts and bolts about, um, you know, how does that, how does that keep happening? You got a lot of vehicles, you got a lot of uh, EMS equipment, you've got um, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of, it's, it's just expensive. Uh, so let's look at that for a minute. I mean, how do you, how do you manage to keep that together? What keeps it funded? So, you know, nobody really wants to hear people, uh, you know, cry about money, but this is really a money topic. Um, you know, we run on a very slim uh, budget. Uh, we, we have the fire department running under uh, more or less tax revenues. Uh, the CSD is a, is a government, uh, so we, we do take in some property taxes. Um, in 1998, the community uh, voted in. Uh, measure A, which is the benefit assessment uh, for residents in the district, which goes to fire suppression services. Uh, we can't use it for EMS. And that more or less those two are the bulk of our fire department budget. And it's enough to keep things afloat. Um, strike teams do bring in revenues um, that assist us as well. Uh, that is an advantage of going out. Um, but we you know, we run our district on you know $350,000, which, uh, which a lot of that is insurance and things of that nature. Um, but, you know, we're able to keep three staff uh, full-time paid and, you know, keep the wheels turning, um, maintenance, you know, all the different things we need to do. Um, so I, I think we're, we're making it. Uh, it definitely is not a flush budget by any means, uh, but we will not complain because we're able to continue. Um, on the EMS side, it's a much trickier animal. Um, this is based on billing. We, we literally have to make enough money off you know, our services of transport in order to keep um, this in the, uh, in, in the, in the black. Uh, we are currently seeing a, a deficit right now. Uh, we have ways that we're going to backfill it, but with the COVID, we're actually seeing less transports. Uh, we have a membership uh, drive that fills in a large portion of it, but we do rely on transporting. 
and with less transports and and heavily relying on uh, ALS rendezvous, as in someone coming from Ukiah that we transfer to, we can't bill. And what we're seeing is a, is a real heavy shortfall this year uh, that we're having to be creative on on plugging the gap for. Um, for the community in Anderson Valley, there is no reason to think that we're going to uh, lose these services. By all means, they will continue, but it's becoming a, a harder and harder challenge for us on the EMS branch. Um, so, you know, that's Clay's department, but it's, it's been extremely difficult this year. Um, but we are working on the backs of volunteers. That's the other major part is we would not be able to do this whatsoever if we had to pay staff. Uh, we have volunteers coming in on 12-hour shifts, um, and uh, there's two people per ambulance shift. So that means four volunteers per day, 24-7, 365, that keeps this thing afloat. And, you know, to pay that staff, we just would not be able to balance the books. Um, so I think that's kind of the the, the view uh, on how we keep things going. Um, and I don't know, Clay, would you add anything to that? Yeah, I would. Um the membership is huge. It covers a huge percentage of our uh, revenues uh, to help keep things going. But another element also, and I want to say, is the ALS funding we're getting from the um, from the county itself. Um, that gives us enough money to be able to stipend our volunteers per shift. It doesn't pay them per se, but it gives them a... $30 per shift stipend just to hang out here for 12 hours, which I, I think is a huge way of saying, hey, you're not wasting your time with us, you know, or, you know, you're, it's not costing you money to be here to volunteer for us. We have people that are coming from Comche, uh, three volunteers from Comche, one from Albion that comes over uh, to support uh, the ambulance service is a volunteer. So it's, uh, I think that's an, another additional important revenue stream. Can I speak to that just a moment? Go ahead. Because um, I'm sure we'll be making a pitch for volunteers, but we talked a little bit about funding. And I can speak, you know, as a volunteer for the, the ambulance, fire service, uh, KZYX, uh, previously being on paid staff for the ambulance a bit, part of the paid staff with the Fire Safe Council. And what amazes me is that um, all through history, dating back to when we mentioned the 50s earlier in the show, what really makes the funding pale in comparison is volunteers. And it's the intersection here with the Fire Safe Council and all these departments is the neighbors helping neighbors with initial response to keep these incidents small or to identify them early or to potentially hold the line until some of these higher up structures that have more resources available can show up. But the, the amount of funding that comes from the county or comes from ambulance memberships or any of it, uh, you know, your memberships as a listener calling into KZYX, literally pales in comparison to the efforts of neighbors helping neighbors volunteers in their home areas participating however they can sometimes that's with money by being a member uh but really you know volunteers throughout the whole history have done this and it's easily you know a, a what's that a logarithmic exponential scale greater contribution that almost can't be quantified 
that keeps the fire safe council going, that keeps the ambulance and fire services and radio station going. So if you're out there listening and you participate, uh, give yourself a pat on the back. And if you haven't yet, you'll find out that there's so many ways you can that are actually really fun and rewarding. We will actually get back to volunteering momentarily. Um, just to piggyback on that a second, Cobb, that's an awesome point. Uh, quick commercial for the Fire Safe Council. That's one of the things we're about is trying to activate as many neighborhood councils and as many groups of neighbors to get involved and do some of the pre-work so that situations don't get as bad uh, and you have a good organized network. Um, and Anderson Valley has got a lot of good ones already going. And I, as I understand it at the moment, the sort of overarching Anderson Valley uh, Neighborhood Fire Safe Council structure is looking for a new leader at the moment. So if somebody's out there interested in stepping up, there's a, a great opportunity and you can um, get in touch with us about that. Um, before we go on to what it takes to be a volunteer and such, you've, you've both mentioned the membership thing. And I want to make sure we let people understand what that is. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about what, you know, what it means to be, become a member? Yeah, the membership program is, it's, it, we are partnered with CalSTAR or REACH. It's actually Med, MedAir. Um, and what the membership program does, it's $125 a year per household. It's not per individual. And it helps support the uh, the ambulance service. We generate about $40,000 worth. We have 500 households that are members and it generates roughly about $40,000 annually for us. Um, the membership itself is, it's not an insurance. What it does is it says that we will bill your insurance and if there is a copay, you are not responsible for any copay that comes out of that. So you won't be responsible for anything additional. Um, and for those who are on Medicare or Medi-Cal, um, I, I don't believe we can bill Medi-Cal. Um, but if there is a Medicare element in there and Medicare doesn't pay the balance, then you won't either because uh, you are a member with us. Uh, the other element of it is the uh, helicopter, uh, CalSTAR and REACH. It, the same thing applies for CalSTAR and REACH as well. And so a part, a portion of that $125 goes to MedAir, and then you become a member of them for a year as well. And it's a way to kind of join the two together. So if you are on one and not the other, you just – you can come in and join us as a, as a package deal that helps support or, our organization, the ambulance service. Great. Thanks for the clarification. Um, so we've talked a lot about volunteers, and I'd like to focus in on that for a second, get a little sense of what it takes if somebody's heard this and is thinking, I'd like to get involved in that. Um, well, if I may what, what first steps? Yeah. Just to, to segue that, can you give some contact information, especially for uh, your websites, all three of you, for membership or volunteer interest? So for Anderson Valley, you can just go to andersonvalleyfire.org, andersonvalleyfire.org. Uh, there's an EMS section that can show you memberships. There's a way to how to become a volunteer. 
um, even some prevention materials, things of that. But everything that you'd want to find would be right there. Um, so that would be our uh, access point. Um, to, it gives you facts, an FAQ sheet on you know all the details you're asking about. You know how much time is it? Things of that nature. Um, so there, there's a lot in that portal, if you will, to to see how you can get in. You can download an application. You can uh, you know see if it's for you. What group you can be in, EMS or fire or both. Um, you know, if you want to just, you know, drive a water tender because maybe you don't want to go to a burning building kind of deal. Uh, you don't want to hike up a hill with, a you know, 300 feet of uh, inch and a half on your back. Um, there are other ways to get involved. Um, everything from we have a PIO, a public information officer, um, you know, who volunteers. She doesn't go on calls. There's different ways to support. And if you go into that portal, you can kind of see, hey, this is kind of my, my way of doing it. Um, so we break it down into groups and, and, you know, we try to fit what you can do to not exclude you if you can't do all of it. So we try to bring it in as a group or a stacking method. If you look at the, uh, for the membership program, if you look at our website, it's listed on a drop down under payments. Well then how about you, Scott Craddy with the Fire Safe Council? Uh, so for the Fire Safe Council, our website is firesafemendocino.org. And we do also have memberships, so other membership opportunity there. Uh, but there's also uh, just a tremendous lot of information. Uh, we've been building our website pretty heavily over the last year. Uh, so if you wanted to see what neighborhood fire safe councils are out there, uh, to see if there's one near you already, uh, we've got a map that's got them pinned that you can zoom in and look at. Uh, if there's not one there, then there's some information about how to start one. Uh, and there's also just a tremendous lot of basic information, including these radio shows. Uh, and um, what we've been plugging heavily lately is we just completed a um, really extensive series of videos about home hardening. Uh, so there's a ton of educational material there that really breaks down home hardening step by step uh, into small little bits. And it's prioritized, so it tells you where to start first, and you can move on down and uh, if you only have uh, five minutes, we've got a short version, so you can check the five-minute version of what to do about your roof this weekend and go start doing some of it. Um, and if, then if you want to know why, you can watch the 20-minute version that gives you some more detail. Um, but anyway, so we have a tremendous amount of information there. Uh, also, you can order your reflective signs to make it easier for, uh, for first responders to find you. Hopefully, we'll have a little time to talk about the issue of uh, roads and naming coming up, which is a big one. Um, but yeah, that's how to get information about us. Um, let's see. And volunteers. So we talked about that. Um, we just, I just talked a little bit about prep. I wanted to turn that back to to you two and see if there are things that you would want to talk to the folks in the Anderson Valley about, about what they would be doing to get ready for next season at this point. So there's, there's a lot of things uh, that people can do. Um, I, I'm a big uh, moment for burning. I love burning. Um, I guess that's the fire side of me. Um, but you know, if you do it right and you do it safely and you do it under a permit, uh, they basically, Burning is a great technique in order to get rid of things quickly. Um, we can kind of go into the parameters of that if you'd like, but um, burning is a really good way, you know, getting that, you know, that pile of burning it, getting rid of it is, is one. You know, we talked about the chipper program. 
uh, chipping stuff and putting some biomass on the ground and reusing it for certain things helps with erosion. You can, you know, keep soil uh, moisture up, things of that nature. Um, and you don't have to go through um, all the burning if you don't like the burning side of things or the smoke. Um, there are things of that nature uh, you can you can get rid of. Uh, but basically, now is the time to reduce the fuels for next summer. Uh, so you're not going to be able to cut and burn uh, things in July when things start getting really prime for wildfire so you got to be doing it ahead um one of the things i learned on the ranch is you always need to be at least a season ahead of any uh any tasks that you're doing so right now we need to be getting ready for summer it seems like we just got done with summer summer so you want to take a break but you got to kind of jump on it uh so basically between the chipping and the burning uh are two really easy ones um you know helping your neighbor out uh you know working with them if they are elderly or maybe have some special needs you know, what is it that they have that they may uh, need from you or, or the neighbors as, as a group and, and some of these communities can pull together for them. Another one we're seeing is uh, road networking uh, uh, phone trees and making sure that everyone gets information in a timely manner. Uh, but setting these kinds of things up now uh, will, will basically, you'll be prepared. You'll be set up for when uh, summer comes. These things take time, you know, between deferral and, and just all the work that goes into it. Uh, so don't think that there's a lot of time. Uh, I think that this is the time to start. Well, we were, you just mentioned burn piles, and um, earlier you'd said there are a lot of calls coming in about burn permits and the situation with that now. Would you like to take a moment yeah. to give some clarification for folks? Yeah, I, I'm sorry. This one's going to be a little bit, uh, hopefully I can create a clear picture, and it may take a minute or two. Um, basically, um, there's a couple jurisdictions that, that you have kind of their hands into burning. Uh, the first is air quality, and the second is your local fire agency. Uh, we go through a couple different tiers of burning uh, during the winter. It's called winter burning season, uh, and that's more or less juris the jurisdiction of that is air quality. They're looking at um, not the fire side of things, but the smoke management, and is it healthy uh, to be burning on that specific day? Uh, they're looking at things like inversion layers, is the smoke going to settle back in and impact your neighbor? Is it going to be windy and maybe disperse the smoke? Um, is there other things going on in, in the area that may have bad air quality and you don't want to add to it? So they're kind of looking at it from that perspective. So during winter burning season, they're the ones who more or less um, are the only people who have their hands in the pot as far as jurisdiction. As you move towards the spring and fire becomes more of a hazard, you start to increase um, your permits, if you will. So Cal Fire starts their fire season is what they call it. It's their fire season restrictions on May 1st. And at that point, you would need a Cal Fire permit on top of your air quality. Um, it's because they have more strict stipulations. So the strictest stipulation always you know, supersedes the other one. So you're going to need to get a Cal Fire burn permit. That's online and they restrict you to four by four and smaller. That goes on for a period of time until the unit says, hey, it's too, it's too dangerous to be burning. We're going to put in what's called the burn ban, and that's just no burning whatsoever. Um, and that basically shuts it down during wildfire season. On the backside of, of the cycle, on the winter, the fall, you see it go back into fire season, and Cal Fire still requires you have burn permit. That's what we're in today. Today is Cal Fire's jurisdiction. We're told this Sunday Cal Fire will remove their restrictions and will go back into winter burning season. So today you would need a Cal Fire burn permit. Next Monday, you would not, and all you would need is an air quality burn permit. 
So if you followed all of that, there's different jurisdictions that kind of have um, their requirements. And we're about ready to transition into next week air qualities, which means you need a burn permit if you're burning anything over four by four. Um, and that's you can get that online. Uh, you pay, I think it's $19, and uh, you should be able to obtain one and burn until April 30th. So that's kind of the uh, the quick and hasty version of that. People get very confused on it, um, rightfully so. <laughs> uh, but that's it. If you want to start burning in winter burning season, you're you're opened up this Monday. Are there any online resources as far as with air quality or the fire department uh, that outline the instruction manual you just verbalized? Yes. Uh, so it's funny. We just had an uh, online uh, discussion about this with air quality and our supervisor last Friday. Uh, they, If you go to air quality, Mendocino County Air Quality Management District, you go into the burning tab, uh, they have a description of these different tiers, if you will, uh, the winter burning season and, and the responsibilities and jurisdiction. And at the bottom, they also have your online application. The one caveat, because this is a countywide radio show, is that if you are in a local fire department's jurisdiction that does not have CAL FIRE, such as maybe Willits or Ukiah, uh, some of these areas, and you need to check you know, your local fire department's restrictions, they may have a slightly different uh, requirements than CAL FIRE does. So if you are in a city or one of those local response areas, you may have slightly different uh, uh, stipulations. Um, we are getting close to the end. So um, I don't know if we'll have time for interesting stories or not. But um, I did want to ask you, uh, I know the department gets a lot of support from the community and has a lot of great community engagement. But um, if you wanted to use the last little bit of time to get some, some word out about what other support you could use and what, what message you'd like to get to people, what would it be? Clay, I just want to jump in and basically say that the heartbeat of what we do is the volunteer. There is no way to dispute that. We, everything that we do is based on their efforts. So if the community, you know, doesn't have financial or, you know, volunteering hours to contribute, if you see someone in a volunteer fire t-shirt or they have that pager kind of stowed away underneath their jacket and you're in passing at the coffee store, wherever you may be, uh, just let them know you appreciate it. You know, thanks for doing what you're doing. Um, that goes a long ways, you know, to know that the community appreciates you. And, you know, just a simple thank you, uh, um, that, that, that does a lot. Um, we always want more volunteers and things of that nature. We want to, you guys to know that we are working for you. We're the public servants and we're here for your service. But if you can support by just letting that person that you know that's on the fire department or on the ambulance, uh, just say thanks. I think that is a huge morale booster, and it, it just shows that the community supports them. Clay, did you want to add anything there? I would just second what Andres is saying. The, the volunteers are a huge part. We couldn't do what we do without the volunteers, the people who commit to basically drop everything in their day, no matter what they're doing, and just run when the pager goes off to help support their neighbors. And I and yeah, 
I don't think that can be understated, not just in Anderson Valley, but in the entire county, the vast majority of this county are volunteers and volunteer departments that rely on people just like your neighbors out there who are out there jumping in and serving their community because that's what they do. Great. Um, and I'm not sure if we have time for another question or not. We might just want to loop back to contact information. I was going to go to uh, sort of what priorities are for the next season, but I don't, I don't think we have time to go there. So um, I'm going to do a quick loop back to where you can find out more about the FireSafe Council, which is firesafemendocino.org. A uh, ton of resources there, contact info. We try to get something going on the blog at least every week. So there's new content and we're loading new video all the time as well. Um, and with that, let me turn it back to uh, Andres and Clay to provide information for people who want to find out more about what you do. So if you want to just jump onto Anderson Valley Fire's uh, website at andersonvalleyfire.org, um, hopefully you can see a lot there. Um, there are people who are wanting to know what calls go on in Anderson Valley. Uh, I know that this is a request from the community uh, during fire season. I hear sirens. Does that mean I need to evacuate? If you want to quickly look on our website, you can see if it's a medical aid and, you know, you can, you can, uh, you know, if it's a wildfire, things of that nature. There's a lot of little links on that website that might be advantageous to you, um, including uh, Everbridge. Please get signed up for Everbridge and get your um, you know, evacuation notices and things of that nature if you haven't already done so. Um, so just go explore it. Uh, see what you can find on there. Um, there's a lot on our website, andersonvalleyfire.org. There's also a link on there on how to become a member if you go down to uh, join us. It says there's a couple of links on to become a volunteer firefighter or to become a volunteer ambulance driver, EMT. 